Hello and welcome to our latest Tap Talks HR podcast. Today I'm talking with Baljit Kaur, Diversity and Inclusion Specialist at Innate Consultancy. Hi Baljit, welcome to the podcast. Hello Anthony, thank you for having me. No worries at all. Um, and we're here today to talk about the impact of the current working conditions on verse, diversity and inclusion. And, and the first impact, I suppose, here is the fact that we're doing this remotely from each other's houses, uh, whereas I usually turn up into people's work with microphones. So that's our first difference right from the start. But um, we, do you want to just start with uh, talking a little bit about yourself before we get into today's topic? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, as you say, I'm Baljit from Innate Consultancy. Uh, I've been in the diversity and inclusion arena for about, um, I'd say, 15 years or so. Uh, previously as a uh, practitioner, so implementing the theory and applying it in practice, which I think is so uh, valuable to do. So, almost like learning uh, the uh, job firsthand. And then for the last, I would say, five or six years, I've been an independent consultant supporting businesses in terms of their policies and systems and strategies and my aim is very much that organizations look to achieve excellence in recruitment and engagement and retention all the things that matter to businesses and then the second arm of what i do is upskilling organizations so when we talk about culture essentially what are we talking about we're talking about the people within an organization and their attitudes and their behaviors so how do we upskill an organization and everybody within that organization in terms of achieving that consistency and that confidence that organizations need in terms of um, the, developing those cultures of productivity? How do people bring the best version of themselves to work? And sometimes I think in organizations we take that for granted, uh, that people should know certain things and it's common sense and uh, often it's not. Uh, we do need to, as an organisation, ensure that everybody is qualified, both technically, but also in terms of, you know, behaviours and attitudes. So very much a two-pronged approach, supporting organisations in terms of policy, system strategies, and then looking to do that upskilling. So we are getting that innovation and creativity and productivity within organisations. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think... Um in, in the, what we've looked at in the last three or four months of how radically the, the world of work has just changed, um, it's almost like those behaviours and that upskilling that I think is is the key thing probably for us to talk around today. Because I know talking to, to many organisations in the past few weeks, it's been very much around how do we enable the technology and enable the physical practices of being able to to work in new and different ways in different processes but then i think the the actual behaviors bring the the concept of diversity and inclusion and those behaviors up to the front because it's a new environment where different things might happen in this environment that we haven't expected in the past so what do you see about what's going on in the work environment at the moment that really interests you as a DNI specialist. Yes. Yeah, so in terms of um, remote working, um, a number of number of things there really. Um, the point that you make, Anthony, just just expanding the point in terms of um, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we often talk about equality groups and protected characteristics. We have labels for certain uh, cohorts of people like millennials, like baby boomers, whatever that label we attached uh, to that particular group. 
But essentially what we need to do is just appreciate that everybody is an individual and will experience the world of remote working very differently. So for some it will have worked, it will have reduced, for example, uh, travel, uh, it will help them in terms of their childcare responsibilities, mm -hmm. other caring responsibilities or other general responsibilities or hobbies that they wish to pursue, whatever that might look like for that individual. For introverted people, for many of introverts, this way of working will have worked for them. And people with disability who don't necessarily, not everybody with a disability, but people with disability, maybe we're talking autism or Asperger's, who don't necessarily uh, require that sort of face-to-face -face and very happily uh, will work from home and enjoy their quiet space and operate in the way that best suits them. So for some, remote working will have worked. For some, people will be going stir-crazy. I've spoken to a couple of people who are very extroverted in terms of their personality, and they are they're climbing the walls. They don't know what to do with themselves. Um, they, they don't want this kind of a structure. It doesn't suit them. They want to break up their routine, and they want to go out and network and have that face-to-face -face time with people. So they're very much talking about going back to the old way of working, which suited them perfectly well. And then there's another group of people who want to actually generate and develop new ways of working. So, you know, be a bit more aspirational and think about what suits them in, in, in the new norm when this is all over. So the experience of remote working is very different uh, for different people. Uh, I think what generally speaking, I think the commonality I see in everybody that I've spoken to in the last few weeks is what people do want is the better work-life balance. That's essentially what's coming out from the last few weeks, people experiencing this very different way of working. People are wanting more uh, autonomy in terms of how they actually manage their work and their life. And we already know that that is one of the biggest reasons why people leave their jobs currently, because people do want a better work-life balance. So this issue about remote working and how people experience it is very different. And when organisations are looking to communicate and engage uh, with their remote workers, it's very much taking that into account. There will not be a one size fits all and there will be, need to be a number of strategies that will need to work for different people. So that's one of the areas around remote working. The other area uh, I'm picking up in speaking to people is around um, disability in particular. So I do want to sort of focus on that area because I think in a number of cases we are letting down people that require adjustments to be made where it's reasonable for the organisation to make that adjustment. So people are now working from home and they don't have the necessary equipment, be it software such as, I don't know, speed, speech read software or even if it's like ergonomic chairs or any screen setting, whatever that might look like. And people aren't being productive and unable to engage with their work most productively simply because they don't have the necessary adjustments in place. So these are things that probably should uh, have been put in place a while ago, enabling people to have that work-life balance. And now some organisations are struggling uh, to do that in a very sort of quick, swift way. And I think uh, the last point around uh, remote working for me, uh, which, is, which has come out loud and clear for most organisations, is this old issue around employee engagement. How do we um, now and going forward engage uh, a workforce, some of whom may be uh, working um, and uh, are, in a, are able to work in this current uh, time, some of whom have been furloughed and are at home? How do we do employee engagement? 
you know, a number of those people that I've spoken to, a number of employers I'm speaking to are talking about uh, people not being as motivated, which is understandable given everything that might be going around them, levels of disengagement that are already emerging, and how do we ensure that um, our leaders and our managers have the skill set and have the strategies in engaging such a varied workforce? So those are some of the issues around remote working that I'm picking up on and I'm talking to organisations around. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because even just there, I mean, the three main areas that you just talked about, there, my mind is just fizzing at the moment of lots of different things that, that, that can come from that. I mean, you, you, your, one of your first comments was talking about labels for different cohorts. And I think quite often we make very uh, labels about very physical appearances and differences when talking about diversity and inclusion. But actually, when you're talking about people working remotely it's almost like differences in behavioral and personality types mm. come to the fore probably more than actual physical differences because we're not seeing people so therefore our biases uh, and the way we respond to those actually become quite different I think that's that's a really interesting point that came out for me and, and, uh, and the second one that that came out was around employee engagement and furloughed employees because these are still technically employees who will return into your organization but by being furloughed they're, they're told you cannot actually do any work whatsoever so you therefore lose the ability to contact them via work email addresses and work telephones um, as a primary source so actually how do you contact these employees and make them feel still part of the organization I think that's really interesting couple of points um so um another one sorry just another one was the work-life balance the work-life balance one is really interesting for me at the moment i'm doing a fair bit of work around that and and actually there's there's some um unconscious biases there is where you expect everyone to deal with work-life balance in the same way but the actual what's going on in their life and their actual where they're living and what's in the their dwelling with them and how large their dwelling is whether they have the outside world all these things you don't know unless you ask do you because you've never had to ask before so um so yeah so so that's super interesting and i know you've got other examples and everything so so what other issues do you see arising um through working through this 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 time of lockdown around edi I think um, I'd like to pick up on the point that you made around unconscious bias because I think that's a, a really key fundamental point that absolutely organisations that have done uh, the necessary adjust, uh, investment in upskilling their people in terms of what unconscious bias is and how it manifests and actually skilling them in terms of strategies that they could deploy to manage and mitigate bias, those organisations will fare better because they'll probably just need reminders and prompts and be able to do have that check-in and be able to uh, address any biases that may be emerging and maybe even spot the biases. But organisations that haven't had that investment, I think it's a really, really um, difficult uh, scenario for them because we now have access, as you say, to people's, almost people's lifestyles. Uh, the way people live, the kinds of homes that they're living in. Is it a flat? Is it a house? children around them we might even be making some value judgments in terms of their socioeconomic status in terms of their parenting styles you know there might be something that's taken place whilst you've been on the screen zoom call with them and you've actually got a view as to how they're parenting their children 
whatever that might look like, um, you are potentially making those value judgments. And the powerful thing about unconscious bias is you've processed the information before you've even known it yourself. That's how powerful bias is. So it's really important that managers, leaders, employees amongst themselves are able to keep that in check. We've now lost, um, with remote working, there's a danger that we've lost that but part of that sort of call-out culture where mm -hmm. if you see something, you're able to call it out. But if you're all remote working and your managers and leaders are having sort of conversations separately with you, then how do you know what's going on in the wider organisation and how are you able to call it out? So I think there are some issues around unconscious bias and how it can manifest in terms of this remote working. And what we also know with unconscious bias is situations where there is a high degree of stress, you know, where people are pushed for time, we're multitasking, um, you know, emotional levels are higher, then um, unconscious bias is potentially more rife than ever before. So I think that point about unconscious bias is a particularly important point. In terms of other issues, uh, I think uh, for me, what's really interesting is this whole issue around uh, recruitment, how organizations go about uh, recruiting. Um, we know that uh, organizations, some organizations, not all, but some organizations had already shifted to sort of video interviews and we're doing that uh, online talent acquisition. And there appeared to be good practice in that area. Still surprised as to how many organizations weren't doing video interviews, but a number were. But this situation now that we're, we find ourselves in actually presents us with some opportunities to think about how we can do things differently on this recruitment front. Recruitment is the one area, the one area in my mind, which is absolutely rife with unconscious bias. Be it conscious bias, be it subconscious bias, be it unconscious bias, whatever, you know, however it manifests. But um, if that's the case, then how do we make things better? Uh, in this current environment and going forward. So at the moment, potentially now we have access to even more diverse talent pools, you know, wherever in the world. If a job needs doing, we, I know organizations are going to other parts um, of the world, going globally in order to find the IT skills that they require to meet the current demands, to ensure that everybody is up and running as uh, in, in this remote working uh, uh, situation. So if we're doing that now, Potentially, was that possible in time that's gone before? I would say yes, it was. And people are less concerned now about what you look like and how you sound, the kinds of judgments we might be making when we're doing those face-to-face -face interviews. And it's more about, have you got the right credentials? Have you got the experience? Give me some examples of the quality of your work. So send me some projects and examples of the kind of work you've done. And as long as that all meets our criteria, you're in. You've got the job because this is a need that needs fulfilling. I'm just thinking going forward, are there some lessons there? Because bias in recruitment is rife. We do make biases and judgments around the way people look, the way they sound, the accents that they hold, the clothes that people are wearing when they come to interviews kinds of shoes, you know, even to that level. And we might think this is a bias of the past, but research tells us it's not. We even make judgments as to whether people, you know, the kinds of shoes people are wearing. And for men, is it black shoes or is it brown shoes? And unconscious biases we might have around that. So does it mitigate all of those um, uh, areas where unconscious bias could potentially um, show up? And I would say it does. As well as that, 
remote working and online talent acquisition potentially reduces some of the barriers that people face, so the whole travel um, uh, requirements that people experience, having to be presentable in a certain style and all the effort you need to put in it because you're going to an interview. Um, childcare responsibilities, how do you juggle all of that? So all of those kind of barriers that people face potentially are being mitigated through this you know, online talent acquisition proposition. Uh, so I think the way forward is very much um, shorter, less formal interviews, whatever they look like, and relying on you know, that experience and the credentials and you know, examples of, of kinds of work that we're looking for you to do going forward as opposed to all the other noise that we make uh, assessments on. So I think there's a, a few lessons there potentially for us to think about in terms of going forward. I think I think that's that's really interesting, isn't it? And I just uh, you finished by just saying lessons, and I've just written down lessons. <laughs> and it's interesting that, that going back to whatever we're calling it, I think the latest is the new normal, uh, if there is such a thing as a new normal. Uh, but but actually, there are some areas where actually this is actually making us do innovate into a better way of doing things by having the lockdown that actually we shouldn't forget. We shouldn't just revert back to type when we go back into the workplace. And as you say, it's um, that why do you need to have a face to face interview at every single stage where actually you could quite easily at your sifting phases have um, video interviewing and save people money from from actually mm -hmm. coming in. And that in itself is a bias because those who have more money can attend more interviews etc and those who have less spare money to go traveling have to probably pick and choose between what interviews they go to so I, I, it's really interesting because you think about this lockdown as actually all the things that we're missing out with and how we mitigate that but actually there's some areas here as you say with the re recruitment that, that actually there's positives to be taken absolutely and I think you know it's just recognizing that we know people will be nervous you know it's an unknown for a lot of people I think particularly with people with disability um, you know there's this whole sort of fear of rejection around interviews because that has been their lived experience so how do we reduce bureaucracy and get rid of all of these hoops and unnecessary requirements so enabling people to you know bring their best self forward and be able to shine and give them the best opportunity that they should have really because we talk the talk we talk about, you know, people being able to bring their whole self and creating those conditions. But in reality, do we apply that to our processes and systems? And I, I think there's a there's a big gap there. And the other the quick thing I wanted to say was um, it also presents us with an opportunity around um, sort of managing our brand. We know that people want to know why they should come and work for you and what it's like working for an organization. So it's very much sort of, um, you know, a candidate's market. I know at this moment in time we're probably going through an unemployment spike, so things might change in the short term around that. But generally speaking, people have the choice, and it's more a candidate's market in terms of do I want to work for you, and what is it like uh, to work for you? I need to know that before I apply. Remote working and online talent acquisition and using technology gives us the opportunity to actually uh, promote our brand. So having videos, interactive uh, exercises on um, the on on the on, te on technology, and also for example having videos where the chief exec, uh, for example, talks about what it's like there. Employees speaking about um, what it's like working for that company, doing a bit of storytelling. Some organisations are doing a little bit of this, but if we went into this space a little bit further, 
we could automate all of that and it becomes a more sort of streamlined, efficient process for us and provides for us as employers and also um, gives the employee, the potential employee, the candidate, what they're looking for, that entire feel as to what it's like working for this company. So, you know, future generations, certainly, there's an expectation around, you know, this agile and more efficient way of working. And this advancement in technology and society generally enables us the opportunity to fulfill some of those requirements. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think uh, I like the way you're bringing technology in there to actually to, to make things more efficient and effective. Because I think one thing's that when we come out the other side of this, because there will be kind of holes in, in budgets and things like that, that actually it will be a focus about how can we become more effective with um, the way we do business to actually recover from this situation. And, and I think that's, that's a really interesting point. I, I'm, I'm really interested uh, around this this concept of uh, bias and unconscious bias. And, and I know you had a couple of other examples and uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. So it's just, uh, just really great if, you, if we could have a quick chat about those other examples of bias that you, you, you potentially could see in the working conditions that we're in now. Yeah, so um, some of the biases um, I think are around uh, a, a number of areas. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a couple here. So I think age is a particular issue for me in that um, age, generally speaking, seems to be sort of a permitted form of discrimination in organisations. It's very unlikely to be called out in the way that we might challenge discrimination or bias around, say, gender or ethnicity. It seems to be an okay prejudice to make general assumptions about the way uh, older people are. You know, we know there's lots of jokes in organisations, for example, what we couch as banter around age. So when somebody turns 60 or 65, it's, it's 65, it seems to be okay to give them a birthday card, which has a bit of a derogatory message around it. So maybe a reference to gramps or, uh, you know, maybe a reference to your past, your sell-by date or whatever that might look like. You know, it's all perceived as banter. And it's very unlikely that organisations challenge that kind of uh, comment uh, and behaviour when it comes to age. Had it been ethnicity or gender or some of the other uh, equality groups, we, you know, an organisation would say, oh, we understand this is a no-go area and look to manage it. So um, the, why I mention that point is because I think the current conditions where we have this focus on older people and the vulnerable. So there's this almost association that older people are vulnerable. And whilst I'm not saying it's not right to um, assist older people and you know check in on older people, absolutely the right thing to do. But potentially, is that reinforcing some of the stereotypes and biases that we might hold around older people in the workplace? In that they're not as productive, in that they are vulnerable. You know, we've already pigeonholed them, and therefore their potential and ability, their potential and ability, is being assessed. So some of those value judgments that we make around older people is the current situation, just looking to reinforce those. So how do we just keep a check on some of that thinking and bias and prejudice that might be being strengthened and you know, we're unaware of it? So how do we keep that in check? I know, you know younger generations are assisting older people in terms of shopping and all of those kinds of things. It was absolutely great. But again, that intergenerational bias where younger people are looking at older people and, and having some of those value judgments and the prospect of being old or, you know, growing old is not a positive prospect. You know, my, I have a 13 year old daughter and, you know, I know in her mind when you turn 50, you're old. 
and she does she does have some uh, limitations uh, or some perceptions around the limitations of older people the prospect of growing old and your ability is already you know ingrained in her at the age of 13. so i'm just thinking whilst it's a great environment to be in everybody's displaying kindness and empathy which is absolutely fabulous it's just being mindful is that potentially reinforcing some of those and the other quick one I want to say is around fathers being at home. Uh, we have uh, generally in organisations there has, and in society generally, we have this stigma around um, fathers taking time off. We know there's a low take up of shared parental leave because of the stigma, because of macho cultures, because of people being mocked within the workplace when they do take time off. So some of that, some of that general sentiment around men taking time off in order to go for a sports match or a parents' evening or look after a sick child uh, is sort of frowned upon within the workplace. Well, at this moment in time, lots of fathers are at home and I wonder what their experiences are and whether they're actually rethinking their work-life balance and would like a bit more of a better work-life balance going forward. We know that there's statistics which tell us that you know, we're in a, in a climate of fatherlessness where fathers are spending 48 hours or more within the workplace and hardly seeing their children, and the impact on their family life and impact on their marriages, etc. So there is an issue there in terms of as we go through this process, looking to collate those experiences. What is it like for men being at home, spending time with their families? And how do we ensure better work-life balance and remove some of this discrimination and stigma that surrounds um, you know, fathers basically taking time off? Yeah, and I think that's an interesting one, isn't it? And I, and I was actually talking to someone about this the other day about um, not a part of the new normal is going to be some, some people are going to suddenly have more time with their families that they didn't have in the past, even if they have to lock themselves into a bedroom and be in front of Microsoft Teams or, or whichever platform for like nine hours a day, they will still not have that commuting time and they will still end up with more time with their families. And actually, will that change perceptions of people? when they go back into the workplace are going, no, I'm not going to accept doing 12, 14 hours a day um, because you only have one life and I only have one family kind of thing. So so that those assumptions of what the expectations of work are could be challenged in themselves, which would then lead, lead on to a better sense of inclusion and work-life balance. It's interesting. Mm, absolutely. So, so yeah, I mean, Belgium, I have to say, uh, we've we've com completed our time on our um, on our podcast already, um, and time does fly even when you're doing remotely as well as face to face. Uh, apparently, with podcasts, but there are some great stuff here, uh, and I'm really taking around challenging some of these uh, stereotypes and biases around age uh, and fathers. But I, I liked your concept as well as unconscious bias around um, the upskilling part that actually those organizations that have actually had the, the, the training and development in what unconscious bias is for their people just need to do kind of top up in this new situation. Whereas maybe there are organizations that have never really approached this subject and didn't particularly have the need to until now that might be floundering a little bit more. Um, and, and maybe that might help them create a, a good inclusive team environment by maybe looking at this area. I mean, that's really cool stuff. I mean, if you had to say one or two takeaways for, for the people listening uh, to this podcast, what would you reckon those would be from your side? So um, in my mind, there would be one around 
making sure we are doing the stock take. So as we're experiencing this environment, are we collecting the experiences of our people? As we say, for some, this will work, for others, it may not. So how are we collecting those experiences? So when uh, things are back the, in the new norm, whatever that looks like, then we are taking the positives forward and we are expediting things where they can be expedited so that we're creating this new, more positive, more inclusive, more diverse environment sooner rather than later. So are we doing that stock take and doing that reset around that diversity and inclusion strategy? What's our vision going forward, given that things have been shaken up? What are those strategies that we need to take forward? And then the whole issue which we've already spoken around in terms of ensuring that everybody does have the skill set. You know, at the moment, we've seen people demonstrate empathy and vulnerability and kindness, all the sort of right brain skills, which are generally undervalued in organisations. We tend to pay a lot of... Um, uh, attention to the left brain skills which are very much the analytical systematic results focused but how do we ensure that the, these traits that people are demonstrating now and have so incredibly been brought to the fore how do we ensure that we there is longevity there that these interpersonal skills these human behavioral skills continue long after this pandemic is over and we can't take that for granted it's the point you made earlier Anthony in terms of human behavior and reverting to type so how do we create sustainable human behavioural change? Because unless we put the interventions in place, people will revert to type. So how do we upskill attitudes, behaviours and skills and have those conversations? How do we facilitate those conversations? Rather than doing and saying you do this and you don't this, typical sort of upskilling, learning development, how do we ensure we're having conversations, facilitating those conversations so we're getting that understanding at that visceral level? I, I think that's that's a great way to finish. Actually, how, how do we generate conversations with our people in these challenging environments to make sure we come out positively on the other side? So uh, that's great. I mean, Balji, it's been a, a fantastic conversation with yourself, and uh, you you sound like you have a wealth of knowledge on the subject. So, if people did want to find you, what's the best way of, of finding you in this big wide world that we're in at the moment? Okay, uh, so two two key areas. One would be my LinkedIn uh, page. So Balgic Core, Core uh, being spelled K-A-U-R, uh, Innate Consultancy. So LinkedIn page and uh, my website, so innateconsultancy.co.uk. So my details will be there. Any articles around this kind of stuff, videos, etc. you'll see a lot of that posted there, but that's where you can find me. Cool. And thanks ever so much, Valjit. I really appreciated your time uh, with me today. And to all our listeners, well, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about this subject and other similar subjects and topics at tapsolutions.com. We'll be back soon with another Tap Talks HR podcast. But that's it. Bye for now. <laughs>